this is Heather. Thank you for joining me today. Today, my guests and I are going to discuss research on the topic of the effects of statins or medicines that control cholesterol on mortality in older people. I'm joined today by Melissa Riley. Melissa, thanks for joining me today. Why don't you take a moment to introduce yourself and let our listeners know who you are and why you wanted to be a guest on the show? I'm Melissa. I'm a clinical assistant professor of pharmacy practice at the University of Mississippi. I teach geriatric pharmacy, for which I am board certified, and I practice adult medicine at the community hospital here. Uh, I want to be a guest on this show because a lot of patients that I end up talking to are very misinformed about statins and cholesterol and a life expectancy, especially as we get older. So definitely would love to help bust some myths here. Yeah, that's awesome. That's exactly what we're here to do and help people to be savvier consumers of health information. So I'm super glad you're here and our listeners are lucky to have you. Can you just share a little bit about the path to becoming a pharmacist? Sure. There are a few options when considering becoming a pharmacist. The traditional path is getting your bachelor's first, then taking the PCAT for admission into the four-year graduate pharmacy program. There's also a three-year accelerated program you can do after already receiving your bachelor's if you can handle having minimal breaks. Um, Another way is through a 06 accelerated program where you do two years of undergraduate work to get all your prerequisites in and then you move into the four years of graduate pharmacy school. And then the first three years of the graduate program are largely didactic with some rotation work here and there. And then the fourth year is strictly comprised of clinical rotation where students will spend either four or six weeks at a different pharmacist site, which could be outpatient clinics and doctor's offices, hospitals of all different settings and specialty pharmacies or community pharmacies. There are other specialties that exist, such as administration, legal settings, government policy making, etc. But this would really depend on your region where the pharmacy school is and the site connections that your school or you have. And then upon graduation, one must complete the NAPLEX, which is a standardized exam of knowledge an entry-level pharmacist should have. And then you also would have to take the MPJE, which is a law exam, and you would need to take this in the state for which you would like to practice. So I have a question. When students graduate from medical school, they have an MD, and they are physicians, but they're not yet prepared to practice on their own, so they do a residency. Is there any sort of residency involved in becoming a pharmacist? Yes. So in the pharmacy world, once you get your pharmacy doctorate and take your NAPLEX, pass your MPJE or your law exam, you are free to practice pharmacy. But for the most part, the jobs that you'll get in this would be like a staff hospital pharmacist or working most commonly at any of the retail pharmacies, CVS, Walgreens, Walmart, things like that. If you would like to work in a different setting, like what I do, teaching in academia or working in a clinical practice site in a doctor's office or having a clinical position in a community setting or working in a hospital, um, you would need to do a residency. So you could do a first year postgraduate residency, which is very general. And it's a year long and you do all sorts of different rotations. It's basically your last year of pharmacy school on steroids is how people describe it. You could also go on after that to do a second year residency, which is what I did to specialize in geriatrics. You could also do a fellowship, which is two years, and that's more focused on doing research and things like that. And you can get board certified in a whole bunch of different things, just like 
in, in the medical world, you can get board certified for all sorts of stuff. Same thing with pharmacy. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think a lot of people tend to have a lot of questions about what pharmacists do and what the path to becoming a pharmacist is. So thank you so much for explaining that. So before we get started, like we do every time, I just want to address a couple of administrative details. Melissa and I have no conflicts of interest. And as a disclaimer, information presented on this show or any related outlets, such as social media and the website, is for entertainment and informational purposes only. It is not intended to provide health or medical advice. If you have any questions or concerns about any of the information presented by anyone or any platform affiliated with this show, consult your healthcare provider and also consult your healthcare provider before making any changes to your health, wellness, medical, nutrition, or fitness regimen. We're talking about an article that evaluated the effect of statins on mortality in an older population. So let's first talk about the news article that you may have seen shared on social media. The article is actually a press release titled, Among Older Adults, Statin Use Tied to Decrease Risk of Early Death. And it describes a study published in JAMA, which is the Journal of the American Medical Association. And the study was carried out by researchers from the Brigham and Women's Hospital and the VA, which is the Veterans Administration Boston Healthcare System. And they found that in a sample of mostly white male veterans over the age of 75, all-cause mortality was reduced by 25% and death related to heart diseases was reduced by 20% when these patients took statins. So with that said, Melissa, can you tell me a little bit about the contents of the article? And would you also mind defining some of the key terms that I mentioned earlier? I'm particularly interested in statins, all-cause mortality, and atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, which I didn't yet mention, but that is included in the title of the research article, so I wanted to preemptively just cover that. On the most basic level, statins are a big class of medications that are prescribed to help lower cholesterol. The drug class is actually called HMG-CoA reductase inhibitors, but all the drugs in the class end in the word statin, so it's easier to say that. They work by selectively and competitively binding to and inhibiting that HMG-CoA reductase, which is basically just an enzyme that's necessary in the pathway to create cholesterol. And statins are additionally prescribed in those with extensive cardiac histories to prevent further cardiac events from happening. This is called secondary prevention. Or if somebody has several risk factors for developing cardiac events, then this is called primary preventions, and statins may be used in this patient population as well. Atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, or I'll probably just refer to it as ASCVD from now on, is when cholesterol, fat, calcium, or other substances build up in our arteries and block blood flow to necessary organs like our heart and brain. As you can imagine, cutting off the oxygen and blood flow to the heart and brain can cause a lot of problems like heart attacks and strokes. We can calculate someone's risk of developing ASCVD through a calculation, which can be found free online if you just search for ASCVD risk calculator in case anyone's interested in finding out their own risk for developing heart disease. And then all-cause mortality is another term that will come up throughout this article. And mortality rate is a measure of how frequently death occurs in a specific population during a specific time interval. 
So all-cause mortality is basically the death rate for all causes or any reason. In comparison to cardiovascular mortality, which is the death frequency as it relates to heart-related causes, such as if somebody died from a heart attack. Thank you so much. Would you mind talking just a little bit about cholesterol? So specifically about good cholesterol, bad cholesterol, whether or not cholesterol is bad for us. Sure, definitely. I would love to talk about cholesterol because it's something that I do have to talk a lot about in my work at the hospital and with my patients there. So first off, cholesterol isn't all bad. Our body does need some of it to make hormones and vitamin D. And good news is our liver actually makes all the cholesterol that our body needs. However, we can receive a lot of cholesterol from certain foods that we take in, and this is where people get into problems with having too much bad cholesterol. So fun fact I like to share is that the only foods that contain cholesterol are animal-based. So meat, fish, eggs, dairy are all sources of cholesterol versus plant-based foods are free of cholesterol naturally. So there's a few different kinds of cholesterol which are often not discussed. For example, my father recently got his cholesterol levels checked and when I asked him for his LDL, he had no idea what I was talking about. And so I just requested to look at his lab paperwork and I noticed that the only thing that was discussed with him was the total cholesterol. And that's just a piece of the whole cholesterol puzzle. So the items to consider when you're getting your lipid panel checked is you wanna ask what is your LDL or the low density lipoprotein you want to ask for your HDL, which is the high-density lipoprotein, and triglycerides. Having a high LDL puts you at risk for heart disease and stroke. Therefore, LDL is the bad cholesterol. It's the LDL cholesterol that builds up in our blood vessel walls that block the oxygen-rich blood flow to our heart and brain and can cause heart attacks and strokes. It's the LDL cholesterol that is raised by saturated fats and obviously foods that I mentioned earlier that contain cholesterol. HDL, on the other hand, absorbs cholesterol and brings it back to the liver where it's processed and removed from the body. So having a high HDL is actually a good thing and can help lower our risk for heart disease and stroke. Triglycerides are a type of lipid that can also increase risk of stroke and heart disease uh, because it stiffens the arteries, so you don't want a high triglyceride count either. And this is usually caused by eating a diet that's high in processed foods with lots of sugar. Thank you. So let's jump back to the news article. And the news article is actually, like I said, a press release originally published by Brigham and Women's Hospital and cross-posted to Science Daily which is a website that collates press releases from mostly nonprofit institutions. These organizations submit press releases and Science Daily posts them to their website, along with a link to the original research, which is super handy. All right, Melissa, what do you say we get into the news article? Would you mind providing an overview? This retrospective study included almost 330,000 mostly white male veterans aged 75 years and older who were newly started on a statin between the study period of 2002 to 2012. These veterans were followed for a mean of nearly seven years to look for the primary and secondary outcomes. And just to clarify, mean means average. This study has two primary outcomes, all-cause mortality and all deaths related to cardiovascular disease. And then the secondary outcomes were cardiovascular disease complications like stroke and heart attack. 
Would you mind describing why this article is important? So we did choose it for a reason. And would you just mind elaborating on why we chose it? Sure. So this is an important study because heart disease is the leading cause of death in the U.S. with about 650,000 deaths occurring each year. And this study looks at how statins can play a role in decreasing our risk of death as it relates to heart disease. It's also especially important, in my opinion, because it looks at an older adult population and older adults are often excluded from other trials. So when you look at guidelines to figure out how to prescribe or de-prescribe medications, a lot of it is not going to be applicable to our older adults because it hasn't been studied in them. So it's great that this is specifically looking at this older adult population. So would you mind telling me where this study was published? This study was published in JAMA, or the Journal of American Medical Association, which is considered a quote-unquote good journal because it is peer-reviewed, which means that experts in the same field review the study and paper before anything is published into the journal, versus a bad journal could and would publish a study without any formal review process. Yeah, so JAMA is definitely a good journal. It is one of the leading medical journals in the world, and it is right up there with the New England Journal of Medicine, which many people have heard of, the British Medical Journal, the Lancet, and so on. So can you just tell me again what kind of study this was and for how long participants were followed? Yeah, this study is a retrospective cohort study, and the participants were followed for an average of almost seven years. I just want to take a moment to elaborate on what retrospective cohort studies are, and I will do a standalone episode on this at some point, but I do want to just briefly talk about it here because it's part of the process of evaluating an article for relevance and quality. So a retrospective cohort study is a type of observational study, and in an observational study, the investigator or the researcher or the people involved in writing the article have no control over the exposures. So in this case, the exposure is either the statin or no statin. And just to clarify, the researcher or the person writing the article has no involvement in prescribing the medication. So the patient's doctor prescribed the medication and the researcher is just analyzing the data. So in cohort studies, there is a control group and a group that received the intervention. So in this case, the patients in the control group are those who did not take a statin and patients in the intervention group received a statin. So we talked about how patients were followed for seven years But what we mean is that we're following patients retrospectively. So the outcomes and the exposures have already happened. And let me just describe a little bit about some of the characteristics of cohort studies. So they are the most robust type of observational study, and they are used to evaluate the effects of an intervention in a natural setting rather than a controlled environment. There is no random allocation, so groups may be different and there may be unseen differences in the groups. Also, with retrospective cohort studies, it is sometimes difficult to control individual factors. So some patients may be taking a different dose of statin and they may be taking it for a different duration. These differences may differ, like I said, between individuals and also between the groups. 
And Melissa did mention primary and secondary outcomes, and I just want to elaborate a touch on that. The primary outcome is what researchers consider to be the most important outcome. Melissa, would you mind telling me a little bit about the patients included in the study? Yeah, definitely. So the study included exactly 326,981 patients. That is a lot of patients when looking at other studies and how many patients they include. So that's definitely a plus for this study. And it took place at a veterans hospital and they enrolled veterans that were age 75 and older with the average age being about 81 years old. They were 97% male and 91% white and did not use statins at the time of enrollment. The researchers excluded patients who already had atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, such as stroke, heart attacks, mini strokes, peripheral vascular disease, and patients with a history of coronary revascularization. They also excluded patients who had used the VA health system for fewer than two years or if they didn't use the VA health system to obtain a prescription. After applying exclusion criteria, patients were then enrolled into the study. Patients receiving a statin were more likely to have comorbidities such as high blood pressure, high cholesterol, and diabetes, and to use other prescription medications. The two groups were otherwise similar in terms of age, sex, and race. Thank you. So we've talked on previous shows about generalizability, and I also released a mini episode a few weeks back. And if you haven't listened to that on generalizability, go back and listen But for now, Melissa, would you talk about whether or not this study included a group of patients who would be generalizable to the population of interest? Yeah, sure. So the researchers attempted to make the study group that resembled the general public by including patients with diseases such as cancer, dementia, or paralysis. They did exclude patients who died within 150 days of being eligible to participate in the study. In looking at how they included 97% males and 91% white, how applicable is this going to be to females and non-white people? It may not be as generalizable to them. And just to recap about those who were in the intervention group and the control group, the control group comprised patients who did not take a statin, and the intervention group comprised those who did take a statin. Melissa, can you tell me a little bit about the limitations of the study? So in this study, they do acknowledge that they have several limitations. The first one is something that I actually already mentioned. So just to reiterate that in this study, they had few women, which comprised of the veteran users. And so the results in the veteran database may not be generalizable to the general population because it includes women. The second limitation that they had noted is that despite trying to minimize bias, there may be residual and and measured confounding in this retrospective cohort study, which is something that you, Heather, had mentioned earlier. And then thirdly, they didn't specifically address frailty, although variables uh, that they did include, like fatigue, slow walking, and polypharmacy could be proxies for frailty, and they did address those things. And then also they noted that adverse effects of statins such as myalgias or muscle pain, increased risk of diabetes, and postulated decline in cognition and drug-drug interactions and polypharmacy were not assessed in this study. They also had noted that surveillance data was not available to evaluate the effect of statins 
that were discontinued on the results, so there's no data after that point. Another limitation that they talked about was that simvastatin was the most commonly used statin in this study, which does not reflect current clinical practice. Um, since, you know, they included patients from 2002 to 2012, but in 2013, the American College of Cardiology American Heart Association guidelines had switched up their recommendations to say that high-dose, high-intensity statins such as atorvastatin or Lipitor or Resuvastatin or Crestor are the ones that are recommended, so those are more commonly seen now. And then lastly, they had noted that it's possible that relevant covariates were not coded or were undercoded. So in the electronic health record, somebody goes in and does diagnostic coding associated with things that were part of the visit. And so sometimes this isn't a perfect practice because humans are the ones entering it. So they're just accounting for any errors that may have happened there. Thank you. So with those limitations in mind, I just want to circle back to the results. So the researchers found that statin use was associated with a 25% reduction in all-cause mortality and a 20% reduction in death related to heart disease. So can you talk to me about the statistical and clinical significance of these outcomes? Sure. So statistically significant is the likelihood that the result is related to the intervention or the event, such as taking a statin, based on the numbers in the study, versus clinical significance is related to the observed effect that the treatment or event has as it relates to clinical care. So something can have statistical significance in the number that we see, but in terms of how it correlates to clinically, it may not be all that important or worthwhile. So is a 25% reduction in all-cause mortality and a 20% reduction in mortality related to cardiovascular causes, is that clinically significant in this population? Yeah, I would say that it's, it's pretty clinically meaningful to reduce anybody's risk of death or cardiovascular death um, by 25%. That's, that's pretty big in my opinion. So you had mentioned to me when we talked earlier that you had recently had a discussion with a group of patients on the use of medications in older age. Do you want to elaborate on that a little bit? I'm really curious to hear about the contents of the discussion and where that discussion took you. So most of that discussion was actually about dementia medications. I was talking to an Alzheimer's group here in Mississippi, and we were talking about how statistically and clinically important the dementia medications are. And then we kind of moved into a discussion about end of life and what medications may or may not be necessary at that time. And there's a big debate about statins because there is a lot of controversy around how clinically meaningful they are, especially towards end of life. So one of the questions that I had posed to the audience was, at what point would you consider discontinuing or stopping your statin? And I, I gave them a few options. Do you stop them when they move into the nursing home? Do you stop it when they turn 75 years old? Do you stop it when they're actively dying or none of or all of the above? And so a lot of people are under this notion that once they go into the nursing home or once they turn 75 years old, that automatically we're preparing for death. We no longer need these statins. And that as a whole is not true. I know plenty of 
I work with a lot of patients that are 80 years old. There's some that are 90. There's even a couple that are 100 years old. Um, so if you're talking to someone who just turned 75 years old and they're otherwise healthy, they could very well live another 20 years. So to tell them that they no longer need their statin because they're going to die in the next two to five years is, is not really accurate, you know, to say that it's not clinically meaningful for them. If they're 75 years old and are closer to the end of life, or perhaps they have like a year left to live, six months, something like that, that's probably when it's more appropriate to talk about discontinuing the medication. So I think it's really important. And what I express to everybody is that without the person that they were asking about being under my specific care, I don't really feel comfortable telling people to stop the statin at any really kind of arbitrary point. You have to look at the person as a whole and what kind of other chronic conditions they have, what their functional status is like, what their life expectancy is like too. And I think that's a hard one for people to grapple with because we often, you know, especially if it's our loved one, or even sometimes ourselves, we think we're going to live forever or we're just going through a bad phase and we'll kind of turn a corner. But turning a corner is harder as you get older. So, you know, kind of being realistic about if an event happens, what that person's life expectancy now is based off of that. Um, so definitely a conversation with the whole team, the medical team and the family and the patient, if they're able to cooperate in that discussion to talk about when it's appropriate to discontinue. But otherwise, the benefits of statins, I think, for primary and secondary prevention um, are going to be really useful for people that are still expected to live two plus years. Thank you so much for that. So speaking of questions, before you and I chatted, I posted in the Facebook group, which for those of you who haven't joined it yet, go ahead and find it on Facebook. Just look for Dissected Health Pod. I posted in Facebook and solicited group members questions. And they had a few questions for you. Would you mind if I got into those? Sure, let's go for it. Okay, so the first question was, does long-term statin and specifically Lipitor, use mean that I should worry about and supplement myself with coenzyme Q10, which is otherwise known as CoQ10, zinc or a B vitamin or iron or basically anything else? That's a great question that I do get all the time. While it is known that statins lower the natural amount of coenzyme Q10 in the body, the use of CoQ10 for relief of statin muscle pain has been a very controversial topic. A 2014 meta-analysis of over six different studies showed that there was no benefit, while a larger and more recent meta-analysis from 2018 that included 12 studies showed that the use of CoQ10 could relieve statin-induced muscle pain. Though there's no for sure answer and lipid guidelines do not recommend CoQ10 supplementation at this time, I would say that a discussion with your doctor to make a decision about it together is warranted. It's more important to report the muscle pain to your doctor before self-treating as they may want to try switching statins before resorting to trying CoQ10 to treat the muscle pain on your own. As far as the other vitamins and minerals uh, to possibly supplement with, I would say unless you're deficient in them, there's no reason to supplement with them. There can be a risk to high amounts of 
you know, zinc, B, iron or anything like that. So you do want to be careful before you just go ahead and start taking them because then your levels of them can get too high. So your doctor should be checking your labs at least annually if you're on statin therapy and just make sure you're adding on a couple extra vitamin and mineral labs to that lipid panel that they might be checking just to make sure that if you're deficient in them, then you can go ahead and supplement from that point on. But I wouldn't suggest supplementing with them prophylactically. Thank you so much. So my second question is, what should people with high cholesterol who are concerned about side effects like leg cramps know? How much can statins reduce your risk of an outcome like a heart attack or stroke? If distinct muscle pain occurs right after starting to take a statin that's not attributed to anything else like a recent increase in your exercise or something else that might have provoked it, then definitely see your physician for further evaluation. Muscle pain could be dose-related or it could be related to the type of statin that someone's on. So if muscle pain is not severe or debilitating, usually they'll say to go ahead and try that statin for a few weeks because it can go away in time. I would recommend trying other statins before giving up on the class entirely. If the muscle pain is persistent beyond that time, go back to your doctor and let them know what's going on, and they can recommend switching to a different statin that has a potentially lower risk of muscle pain, and this would be Resuvastatin, or Crestor is the brand name, and Pravastatin, or Pravacol, is the brand name for that one. And then in terms of how much statins can reduce heart attacks and strokes, this really varies depending on the study. One meta-analysis showed that for every millimole per liter uh, reduction in LDL with statin therapy, there was an appropriate 22% reduction in ASCVD events like stroke and heart attacks. But studies really vary, like I said, and generally I've seen that it can reduce the risk by anywhere between 15 to 50%. And this would obviously be affected by intensity of statin and then the person's other risks and other comorbidities. Thanks for answering that. So just to circle back, it looks like the meta-analyses that you discussed are pretty consistent with the results of the study. So that's actually pretty good news. Usually when the results of one study are significantly different than other studies on the topic, that is a cause for concern. So I'm glad to hear that the meta-analyses are pretty consistent with the results of this study. All right, so I've got one last question. I have heard that statins over time will weaken your muscles. Is this true? While statins are widely known to cause muscle symptoms, they're actually very rare. They're more known to cause just muscle pain and in very rare situations can cause muscle damage. So I would say one to 5% of patients will experience the muscle pain. And like I said, this could be very mild and could be easily fixed just by kind of waiting a couple weeks or by switching to a different statin that's less likely to cause the muscle pain. And then the 1% of patients that could experience this severe muscle damage, um, this is called rhabdomyolysis, by the way, it is a dangerous condition that can lead to liver and kidney failure and even death. Um, but your doctor should be monitoring your urine for the creatine kinase, which is an enzyme involved in the breakdown of muscle and the amount of it would be elevated if you had rhabdomyolysis. So that's why it's really important that you do alert your doctor when you have muscle pain at the first sight of it, even if it's mild, just let them know so that they can monitor you more frequently for that. But I wouldn't say that anybody that's on statins long term, that it has any evidence of damaging your muscles in time outside of this rhabdomyolysis. Thank you so much. So so I think we've touched on 
all of the questions that I had. Is there anything else you want to discuss or do you have any key takeaways that you think the audience should know specific to this study or anything else related to statin use? I think the biggest thing is it's really important to make sure that you don't really do anything to your medications without the advice of your doctor and pharmacist on board because it can be dangerous kind of self and self, uh, you know, change your doses or take things over the counters um, because it's not really regulated, the over-the-counter stuff. So always talk to your doctor and pharmacist before trying to self-treat. Awesome. Excellent advice. And that just links back to our disclaimer. So. To the listeners out there, check out the show notes on the website, dissectedhealthpod.com. And there you will find links to the articles that we discuss and also links to the evidence to support Melissa's answers. We talked about meta-analyses and the links to those will be there. Melissa, thank you so much for taking time to talk to me tonight. And it was a pleasure to talk to you. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider sharing, subscribing, and leaving a five-star rating and a kind review. If you have suggestions for improvement, please email me via the contact page on my website. Also, please consider sharing the Facebook group where you'll get a sneak peek about future episodes and have the opportunity to ask questions of guests before the show. Join me next week for a deep dive into the world of randomized control trials. Have a great week. See you Tuesday.